Let's turn our Bibles this morning to James chapter 1. My text is verse 18. For time's sake, we're just going to read this verse. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the text that we are going to open up to us this morning. In the context, we know that James has been instructing us not to lay the blame of our sins upon God. That is, when we are tempted to do evil, we are not to say, well, it's God who is tempting me to do this. And I think for us, brethren, this is kind of an easy thing to do. Because we do believe that God is sovereign over all of his creation, that he is sovereign over all things. And uh, we believe what our confession states, which I'm about ready to read. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So while we do believe that and we do profess it among many witnesses, then that, thus then we can see how it would be easy in our sinful, logical way to say, Ah, if I am tempted to evil, God then is behind that. But as well, we also confess and profess what the confession says. It says, Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it, as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Well, that is what the confession says. And so, because of that, and that is what we believe, we believe the Bible actually teaches that, then we have the tendency at times to think, well, then if I am tempted, I am tempted to do evil by God. Or better yet, As believing the scriptures themselves, we read, for instance, in Ephesians 1, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Or Romans 9, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Thus, and you can see how easy it would be then, because of our own ignorance and because of unbelief, to say that God tempts us to evil. But thankfully, James has shown us otherwise. As much as our carnal reasoning and our own unbelief would lead us in a different direction and say, Ah, yes, God does tempt us to sin, James says, No, this is not the case. In fact, James shows us there in verse 13 that it's really impossible to do so for the reason of this, because God himself cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. Also, as we learned last week in reality, God is the author of all good and perfect gifts which come down from above. And he says that, again, in opposition to what he'd been speaking of there in verse 13. Let no man say, when he's tempted of God, or excuse me, when he's tempted, he is tempted. Oh, let me read it just out of the text here. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempting he any man. We know where the source of temptation to evil comes from. It comes 
from our own hearts, as verses 14, 15 tells us. And then we're reminded in verse 16, don't err about this. Don't make the sinful, unbelieving, carnal, reasoning mistake of saying that God is the one who causes us to be tempted with evil. Well, in that light then, in that context, he brings up what he says here in verse 18, the subject before us. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So what James puts out here then, in the midst of this argument, so to speak, of not charging God with evil, and that in reality he is the giver of every good and perfect gift, he sets before us then the biblical doctrine of regeneration. If you want to know a good and perfect gift that came down from the Father of lights, it is this one here, the regenerating work of God. God regenerating or causing sinners to be born again. That is an act not only of God's sovereign and immutable will and His pleasure, but it is a sign of His goodness. Because you remember again in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So God taking sinners and giving them new life is a good work, a good gift from the Father of lights. So then from verse 18... I want this morning to open up in our hearing the good and perfect gift of regeneration. Now, if this sounds like a theological lecture, it's because some of it will be just that. We want to deal theologically and biblically with the idea of what the Scripture means by regeneration. And what we're wanting to do is to give you another lesson, as James has given us lessons already in this chapter, on the deal or on the subject of being born again. So what we're going to do today is to look at something of the nature, something regarding the nature of being born again or of the new birth or as it's sometimes called, regeneration. Of His own will begot He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. The first thing I'd like us to see as we learn the lesson regarding regeneration, this great gift that God gives, is first of all the need. The need. Why would God have to give such a good and perfect gift like that? Why would we need to be born again? Why is there a need of sinners being taken by the sovereign hand of God and created, as it were, anew. Well, for the very reason that we all have, we all, excuse me, are born sinners. That is, those of us who can understand some spiritual understanding of the Word of God by God's help, we see because we are born sinners then, there is an absolute need of the new birth. So the need comes in because of this. We are born sinners. 
in the sight of God. You and I need to be born again because we are sinners. We came into this world sinners. Remember Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and He told him, Ye must be born again. Well, why must we? Why, Nicodemus? Why does our Lord Jesus tell you that you must be born again? Well, Jesus answers, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If we expect Christian or sinner, for that matter, here this morning, to enter into the kingdom of God, then we must be born again. Previously, the Lord said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, brethren, if we would enter in and see the kingdom of God, it is of absolute necessity then, according to the words of our Lord Jesus, that we be born again. It is imperative that we be born again. You here this morning who are alienated from Christ Jesus by your unbelief and your sin, it is of utmost importance that you be born again or you will never enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot. That which is flesh is flesh. You can never, ever enter into the kingdom of God in the state in which you dwell at this very moment as a sinner. Now, that's the overall reason given by our Lord. You must be born again or you cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. But Scripture reveals, obviously, further causes and and that we want to deal with at this moment here. What's another reason as to why we must be born again? Well, Jesus said because you can't enter into the kingdom. Well, again, behind that, what would be the reason? Well, because you and I, as we mentioned earlier, are dead in trespasses and sin. So with that idea then, we're dead, we must be born again. With the idea that we are dead in sin, we must then have new life. Now, notice several things about this. First of all, all men by nature are this way. There's not some who are born alive in a spiritual sense. There are not some who are born in some kind of a neutral state, or like Locke was teaching, this idea of a clean slate, and then you kind of dirty it up as you go on in life. No, we are born sinners before God. That is, when we are born into this world, we are destitute. That means, children, we don't have it. We are without spiritual life. There's no spiritual life in us before God. Now, it's true we have physical life. We've had a birth here recently in our own congregation, and we know what physical life is like. And we know that little Eva is alive because we hear her. We can see her breathe. We can see her move about. Those are signs of physical life. And all of us in this room today have physical life. But we are born, though, spiritually dead. 
So the amazing thing about that, and I was I was making my notes and thinking about this, and not trying to be a play on words or any of that kind of smart aleck stuff. But the amazing the thing is that you and I, as we come into this world, we are born dead. Yes, we're born alive physically, just as we pointed out. And there's lots of signs showing that. Now, it's true, there are some who come into the world stillborn, that is, they're dead. But those of us this morning who are here, obviously that did not take place to us. But we did come into this world spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, let me qualify that, spiritually dead to God. Now, when we say all this, this doesn't mean we don't have a soul or that we don't have a spiritual nature, because we most certainly do. But the point of it is, as creatures of God made in His image, though, we are quite dead towards God. We are fallen. And in that fall that we experienced with Adam, Adam, we became dead in trespasses and in sins. We're dead towards God, spiritually. We're dead towards God regarding His truth, regarding holiness, regarding His law, regarding what righteousness is. Now, we're very much alive to unrighteousness. And that's what the Bible speaks about when it talks about being dead in sin. See, we are alive to sin. Look, if you will to the pivotal text on this, Ephesians 2. And this spiritual death which we have is the cause of all sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he's giving, first of all, he's saying, and you hath he quickened, or the word there means made alive. We don't think of quickened that way anymore. We think of like doing it fast. But uh, you've, anyone who's ever peeled back their fingernail too far, instead of clipping them, they peel them back. You say, oh, I got my fingernail in the quick. And you say that because it's very much alive. You feel it. Well, that's what he means here in our text when he says, you had the quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. So that's the state of all of us apart from being quickened. How are we are spiritually dead in sins. Not that we don't have a spirit, that we don't have a soul. Oh, those we very much have. But they are dead to God and alive to sin. Now, what is this death then, this spiritual death that we have? What's it consist of? Well, first of all, it consists in a likeness to sin. To be spiritually dead means you have a conformity to sin. And a conformity even to this world which is sinful. Look again in our text, in, or not I'd say the other text in Ephesians 2. Paul begins to open up what it means to be spiritually dead. And you would think, well, this is not death in the sense that I normally think of death, and that's the problem. When we think of death, we need to look at it in the biblical light. Death does not mean inactivity. Because we're very much active when we're spiritually dead. Look at verse 2. He says, "And uh, we were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1. We're in, verse 2, that is, in that life. We're in time past. Ye walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the prince that now that work, the spirit that now that worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So what does this spiritual death consist of? It consists in some things, in a likeness to sin, a conformity to it. And notice, a conformity to the world. This is why it's so dangerous, brethren, to want to be like the world. Because you're putting yourself right back where you used to be. Rather than demonstrating signs that you're alive to Christ, rather you're demonstrating signs you are dead to God and alive to the world. You're dead in trespasses and sin. Because it's those who are dead in trespasses and sin who are captivated by the world. You walk according to its course. You see, the world has a course. It has a pathway. It has a way in which it's going. It's the broad road that leads to destruction, as Jesus says in another place. And so part of this spiritual death is this the conformity to the world. But ye who are quickened, that's been resolved. You've been resurrected out of that. Never to return again as far as dominion is concerned. Not only that, but we find there is a hatred to God and His law. Romans tells us, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So when we think of spiritual death this morning, we not only think it of something of a conformity to sin and a conformity to the world, but it is the opposite of God. It is a hatred, an enmity to God and to His law. And for those who say, I hate God's law, or that, that you wonder. You have to wonder. Because people who are saved and who have been regenerated by the grace of God, they now delight in the law of God after the inward man. They don't try to get away with it. They don't try to do away with it. They don't try to shove it under another covenant. They love it. They delight in God's law. Thirdly, our minds... Another aspect of being dead in sin. Our minds are profaned and corrupted by sin. You know, so many people today believe in free will. And you know, and the will is just kind of sitting there and oscillating between good and evil. And, and when your mind makes the choice, it either goes one way or the other. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture teaches whoever sins is the servant of sin. The Scripture teaches that our, our minds, we walk like the Gentiles at one time. Vanity, he calls it in verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's our life. And then fourthly, there is a captivity to sin's dominion. When we think of spiritual death, we think of a captivity to sin's dominion. Sin is the master. It rules in the life of all those who have never been born again. Sin speaks, and we are its willing servants. Yes, Master Sin. Yes, Master Sin. I bow at your feet. I worship you. 
I have my life, my being. I move within the realm of my master sin. That's Romans, the sixth chapter. And then fifthly, legally speaking, we are under the condemnation and wrath of God. Look at Ephesians again, chapter 2, or I'll just read it to you in verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation, or that means behavior, in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Whatever you want to call, whatever you think of that last part of that verse, whatever we were, so were they. Because that's what he says. Even as others. who have, In the context, who have not been killed, quickened. We are under, were under the nature, or excuse me, the wrath of God. Even as others. So whatever they are, we are too. And they're certainly under the wrath of God, are they not? They are condemned. We were in that light as well as far as temporal matters were concerned. But someone's going to object. It's always there, so we'll try to answer it. There seems to be some who we look at and they have some moral good about them. They seem to be good folks. We see some good acts being performed by men who in reality make no pretense to the religion or Christianity. We see a lot of that, don't we? How do we answer that? Let me just read this real quick quote. He says, What man calls his natural goodness then, the good-heartedness and good temper and good humor, is not goodness before God, for it is but a product of indolence or self-indulgence, or at best, nervous constitution. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In thy sight shall no man living be justified. By nature, men are spiritually dead. Or to put it in Paul's language, there are none good, no, not one. There are none righteous, no, not one. Even though from the appearance there seems to be that. Before God, though, there is none. Why? Because of all these things I've just described. These five things show us that in reality there can be none good. There can be none who do good as far as God's law and as God's justice and holiness is concerned. And thus then, there is this great and absolute need of our text of being born again. Why must you be born again? Because we are dead in trespasses and in sins. And we must have then new life. So that brings me to my second head. The new birth, or as James says here, begot he us with the word of truth. Now we saw a while ago what it meant to be spiritually dead. Now we want us to know, we want us to look at what it means to have, or means of the new birth. That is, what does it mean? What's the nature of it? Well, first of all, the scripture shows us first that it, that man by nature cannot understand it. Or again, that's why the gospel and all this good news is mere foolishness to men. It's a stumbling block to the righteous, self-righteous, and it's foolishness to the high thinking of our day. And so Scripture shows us that man by nature just cannot understand it. Jesus himself says, you don't understand, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, here you are, a teacher, a master in Israel, and you know not these things? He had read Jeremiah 31. 
He had read the chapters in Ezekiel that talked about the new birth, but he didn't grasp it. He didn't understand it. Nicodemus, though he was a high up religious man, teacher, master in Israel, a Pharisee, just as Paul, and yet he knew this not. Know you not these things? In fact, Nicodemus says, you mean to be born again? I have to get back in my mother's womb? I've actually had people tell me that when I told them that they must be born. I thought, well, you can only read that in the Bible. I've actually had men and women tell me that. When I said you must be born again, I was describing something of sin and something of salvation and how that you can only be really truly converted by the new birth. You must be born again, as Jesus said. And they would say, you mean i got to get back in my mother's womb? Well, they didn't say that, but something like that. You see, that's the natural thinking. That's the sinful, blind-hearted man. It's a mystery to him. But the natural man, Paul says, is receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It doesn't surprise me that the world doesn't know this. I'm rather shocked when they do have some grasp of it in reality. So it's that part. Secondly, to its nature as revealed in Scripture, we see several likenesses given to it. For instance, it's as we see here, a birth itself. Remember the words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. No, not Nicodemus. You really don't get back in your mother's womb again. But it's like that. It's like coming out anew from, from your mother's womb. You're born again. And so he likens the new birth, the nature of the new birth, to a life being born into the world. And that's what the Christian's like. It's like he's never existed before spiritually, which is true. He hasn't. He's been dead in trespasses and in sin. But now he's born into a realm where he is a spiritual babe. And then as time and progress goes on, he grows and nurtures himself through the means of grace and he becomes a full mature man after a while. It's like the birth. It's like children coming into the world. A second likeness is that it's the gift of new life itself. Again, as we were saying, we were dead in sins. Ye hath He quickened, made alive. You were dead one moment and then alive the next. You were dead in sin, loving sin, and next you were hating sin and loving righteousness. It's like, and this is similar, to a resurrection. Death overcomes a man. And then Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And that's the way we are when we're born again. Literally, Jesus speaks the Word. In that mysterious way of regeneration, God speaks to our souls through His Word and we become alive. And we walk out of the tomb, as it were, yanking the the grave clothes off of us. Jesus says this in regards to the new birth, which He does liken it to the resurrection of the body. 
He says in chapter, and I'll just turn there, 5 and verse 24 of John, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Those of us who have been born again, we have heard the voice of the Son of God, and we lived. We were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. It's likened to the new heart. And again, this is just a likeness. It doesn't mean there's a reality there. You don't have a new pumper within you. Um, but it means there you have a new heart. And out of the heart, of course, is where everything has its being. And so God gives, He renews that. And it's called a new heart. Jeremiah, for instance, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor for every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There not only is the new birth spoken of, but even the effects of the new birth. And we know that's what it's dealing with, because when we turn over to the book of Hebrews, we see it spoken to us there in the new covenant. The new birth is a new life which is imparted to us. And the effects of that new birth is that sin's dominion is destroyed. Spiritual light is imparted. New principles are implanted in the soul. And thus now then we have a new obedience. We have new loves. We have new delights. There's faith. There's repentance that comes out of this new heart. Now it's still us. We're just given new hearts. We're given new want-tos. And let me help someone on this because I know how this can be kind of confusing. But when I mention new loves, there are at times, or there obviously are some new objects of love. That is, at one time, remember, we were at enmity with God. Now we love Him. At one time, we were not subject to the law of God, neither indeed could be. But now we are. So there's new objects of love there. But there's also some old objects of love that remain. The old, there's new ones. God, truth, Christ, holiness, the law of God. But there are those former objects that are lawful that still remain about us. Let me give you an example. Husbands, you are to love your wives. Whether you're saved or lost, you're to love your wives. And you may have loved your life in an un- wife in an unconverted state. And when you're saved, you know what? You're still going to love your wife. You who have children, you were lost when you had them. You loved your children. And when you're saved, you're still going to love your children. The objects don't change. 
You'll still love your children. You'll still love your husbands. You'll still love your wives. But the difference is, you will love them out of new principles. Because there's a new heart. Same love. Same object. Just new delights in them. New principles that they flow from. And then thirdly from our text, we see the efficient cause of the new birth. That is the author. Who's the author of the new birth? Listen to the Armenians again. Today it's you. You are the author of the new birth. All you do is believe and you're born again. That is the very opposite of Scripture. The fact of the matter is, God is the author. Notice this. Of His own will begot He us with the word of truth. It's God. In fact, it is God's will which is sovereign, which is distinctive, which is the will of God. It's part of that sovereign kindness. We saw back up in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That immutable will imparting that free gift of regeneration. God is the author of it. And He sovereignly dispenses it as He pleases. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It's not you who willeth. It's God who wills. And if you're born again here this morning, let me assure you this morning, it was not your will. It was God's will. You were born again. Or it would not have transpired. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will including your new birth. And then quickly, fourthly, we see the means of the new birth. Of His own will begot He us with the word of truth. God is the author and the word of God is the agent, simply put. The means or the instrument of God causing us to be born again is the word of truth. And let me say here now, this does not take away from God's working. It does not take away from the sovereignty of God because all of this is in the purpose and plan of God. He uses the Word to cause you to be born again. Yes, it's His power that is set forth. It is His light that comes blazing through your soul in order for you to grasp this truth that you hear. But it is still the Word of truth that is the agent or the, uh, the, the means by which we are born again. Peter telling us basically the same thing. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Notice Peter says, being born again. James says, of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. And then we see, fifthly, the purpose in our text. 
of the new birth. Of course, the overall purpose is what? God's glory. Everything He does, first and foremost, as far as the manifestation of His goodness, His glory, His grace. That God will be all and in all. That His wisdom will be magnified in His saving of sinners. Which He didn't have to do. But He does. The elect fell, but He didn't have to save them. Except in the covenant. Which we won't have to have worry about that because we know He is. But I'm just saying, as all this is done, it is the grace of Almighty God. To the glory and to the honor of His name. But James says something else, doesn't he? Why does he beget us again with the word of truth? He tells us in verse 18 that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here's why. Here is the sub reason, the sub cause, the sub purpose of God causing us to be born again. And James's context is so that we will what? Would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You may scratch your head. What does that mean? Remember, James is a Jew, so he was familiar with the Old Testament. And the first fruits were the offerings that were given unto God under the Old Covenant, which showed, in reality, that God owned it all. And that that's belonged to them. So they were to have their harvest. The children of Israel were to go out and have their harvest. And they were required to take the first bit of that harvest and to bring it to God as an offering. Why? Because it all belonged to Him. And thus then that was called the first fruits. Because God would receive that first fruit of the harvest. They belonged to God. Now you can read that. We won't take the time. But that's in Deuteronomy 26. So, those of you who are more studious, you may want to look at that later on. That's where that's found at. Deuteronomy 26, verse 2, verses 4 through 7, also verses 9 and 10. But the point of that, it was foreshadowing this very thing, something of the new birth, according to James. And in that sense, then, it shows, God, shows us that we, as begotten ones of God, belong to Him. Now, it's true. The whole creation belongs to God. In one sense, we are all God's offspring. Even the heathen poets knew that, according to, to uh, Paul on Mars Hill. And in a sense, we're all the children of God. But there is that special relationship of the elect who are born again. That we are the first fruits unto God. Christ, as it were, offers us up to God. So one of the good gifts of God to us is the new birth, which demonstrates we belong to God. That's the context James is trying to get us to see today. Why does he put in verse 18? For that very reason. That the good gift that God bestows upon us, which is the new birth, which in turn demonstrates to us and to the world, especially at that last day, that we belong to God. As Paul says in another place, this shows you again how there is no contradiction between Paul and James. Paul tells us in another place, we are bought with a price. Therefore, 
glorify God. We belong to God. Redeemed and purchased and regenerated by God Himself. Well, in closing, let me say this. A couple applications. Sinner, this morning, and it matters not how young or how old you are here today, you must be born again. You must be. I hope by now, at least in some measure, outwardly you've understood. And if God's working in you to be born again, I know you understand this. That you were dead in sin. That you had dominion in this world and it was sin was over you. And you were just like the world. You couldn't wait to be like the world, to get out in the world, to be the world itself. And to influence, influence others to be like you in this world. That's what it means. That's the conformity that you have. And because of all of that, with sin reigning and you just being condemned before God in that way, my friend, you must be born again. And this shows us again, it cannot come by any efforts or any desire or goodness upon your part, can it? Remember, who is the author of regeneration? Who is the author of your salvation? If you are come to Christ, it will be God and God Himself. Titus 3 says, Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us by the washing of regeneration. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. So it is the new birth that you need above anything else in this world. It isn't a new home. It isn't a new car. It isn't money. It isn't riches. It's God's grace in bestowing that good gift of being born again. And then secondly, we are God's peculiar People. Remember again, we're the first fruits unto God. And that since then we are peculiar. And I know people take that passage in Titus two, verse 15, verse fourteen, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and to purify himself a peculiar people. I realize some people say, Well, that just means we're odd because we're saved and we don't live like the world. Well, that's true. We are a peculiar people as far as the world is concerned. But that's not what he means there. When he says peculiar people in that passage, he means that we are something different. We are different in this sense. We are special people to God. We are his peculiar possession. We are precious in his sight. You see, we are the objects of God's electing love and His good gifts that He gives unto us. We are His peculiar people in that sense. So then, brethren, the exhortation then is, let us live like it. Let us live like we are that peculiar, special, precious people before God. We've been given to Him by Christ as the first fruits. We belong to Him. Then let us, as Titus is told there in that very passage I read about himself, uh, we being a peculiar people, it goes on to say, zealous of good works. 
Paul talking about that very thing again in chapter 2 about the new birth. You remember being born again so that we might believe and understand and see something of the grace of God. For he says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And thus we ought to live like it. Think like it. Talk like it. Act like it. Reason like it. Think about this, Christian. Those of us who have been born again. We are something most of the world are not. Think of that. You, this little flock here this morning, and the Christians who belong to it, you are something most of the world are not. And if we are born again, we experience something most of the world will never experience. You see, we are a peculiar people. Unlike anyone else. And I don't mean just in moral ways we walk, but in the gifts and the grace that God has given us. So how dare we say in James's context that when I am tempted to sin, I am tempted by God. 